you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for LAist's new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We are where we eat. We'll go behind the scenes of LA restaurants. The kickoff event is May 22nd. Tickets at LAist.com events. It's Film Week on LAS 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us. I'm joined this week by critics Peter Rayner of the Christian Science Monitor, Claudia Puig, who's the president of the LA Film Critics Association and program director for the Santa Barbara International Film Festival. And we have with us from Animation Scoop and Animation Magazine, Charles Solomon as well. First up this week, the Super Mario Brothers movie, the uh, animation comedy adventure that stars Chris Pratt, Aaron Horvath and Michael uh, Jelinek are the directors of the film written by Matthew Fogel. Claudia, Super Mario. So I, I probably should give a disclaimer. I am not a video game person. Um, so I was not. I mean, I've certainly heard of Super Mario Brothers in the Nintendo game, but I was not. I'm not a person who's played it. Um, but it's all about nostalgia. And it relies on, you know, the main characters and the bright colors of this wacky world. Um, what it seems to have forgotten is to create an engaging story. Um, it feels bland and uninteresting and cobbled together. The voice acting is hit or miss, uh, mostly missed. And the story feels rushed and noisy and overstuffed. Um, I, I guess they want to make you feel like you're inside a video game, obviously. Um, and uh, like I said, I'm not the target audience, but I think it will do well because of the nostalgia factor. And in the uh, screening that I went to, there were, um, you know, a fair amount of dads with little kids. Um, uh, it seemed like dads with little girls for some reason, and the little girls were crying. Um, you know, they not they, for joy, not for little children, not for <laughs> not for joy. No, um, even though there was a Princess Peach, which might have uh, appealed to you know little girls who are interested into princesses, but um, it's the origin story of the Mario Brothers, the plumbers. There's a lot of like almost offensive Italian stereotypes in it too, which feel like they don't quite play nowadays as much, but um, not offensive, but just kind of, you know, stereotypical. Um, anyway, they fall through this pipe portal in Brooklyn, as you do, and they <laughs> land in, <laughs> in a mushroom kingdom, uh, and that's ruled by this feisty Princess Peach with a very strange hairdo, and who's played... The voice talent is actually really impressive, like Anya Taylor-Joy, um, Jack Black, who actually did a pretty good job. He plays the evil villain, Bowser. Um, Seth Rogen. Keegan-Michael seemed... Key. It's quite a voice cast. Yes, it's quite a voice cast. One of the problems is that Mario is voiced by Chris Pratt, who doesn't really doesn't do much for it. I mean, he can be very charming, but he isn't particularly charming here. Luigi, his brother's voiced by Charlie Day. They don't give him much to do. Everyone seems to have New York accents for no explicable... I mean, the, obviously the two brothers from Brooklyn, but other people do too, even the villains in this other kingdom. Um, one of the themes, I guess, is to look out for your siblings, and that's kind of sweet. Their lines like, nothing can hurt us as long as we're together. So, you know, if that's encouraging love between siblings, that's a good thing. Um, and, yeah, it's just, you know, it's made for nostalgia fans. And um, what, what did you think of the animation quality? Not a lot. Um, I, I wasn't that impressed. I thought it was, um, I mean, there were some really dazzling colors, but some of it was kind of hard to figure out. Like there, there's these little mushroom people, and then there's the uh, the kind of bad guys who are turtle people for no explicable reason. And it made me think of like the Ninja, Mutant Ninja Turtles. I wasn't very impressed with the animation. I wasn't very impressed with the voice talent. Um, it just felt like it was you know, kind of hollow, playing on merchandising the way so many, you know, animated movies can be, kind of soulless. And when you were talking about all the busyness of it, like putting you as though you're in a video game, there's something we've heard a lot about these adaptations to film. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And Which kind of makes sense that you, because it's for the fans. The sure. People already. And, you know, maybe fans will feel differently. Um, there was that earlier one that was made in 1993 with John Leguizamo and Bob Hoskins, which was a live action version. And apparently that's become kind 
kind of a cult classic, um, but it was apparently so bad in its day that, that it took him 30 years to make another one. <laughs> <laughs> the Super Mario Brothers movie, rated PG, it's in wide release. Rewind and Play takes us back to a television interview that Thelonious Monk gave on French TV back in 1969. He's at the tail end of a European tour. We see Monk in the documentary, which is directed uh, by uh, Alain Gomi. Uh, the film uh, is in French and English. Rewind and play, Peter. Well, this is a movie that I, I'm sure would appeal to people who love Thelonious Monk. Uh, and if you don't know him, you should see it anyway, because all people should love Thelonious Monk. Everybody should know, you know Monk. I mean, he yeah. was one of the great geniuses of, of American music, not Incredible. just jazz. And um, so the genesis of this film was that... Um, in December of 1969, at the end of a European tour that he was doing, um, he was in Paris. Anyway, it was a jazz show that was hosted by uh, a guy named Henri Renault, who looks kind of very straight-laced, sort of like John Dean, uh, but he actually apparently was was a, a well-known jazz pianist. Um, but uh, he's interviewing Monk, who who clearly doesn't want to be interviewed, and he's you know sitting under the hot lights. And being asked a lot of, of kind of uh, uh, insinuating questions, and uh, it, it, it's it's not very re- revelatory at all. But what happened was that the rushes and the full interview for this was obtained by the uh, by the director Alain Gomi, who uh, crafted this film about Monk that that we're seeing. Um, he was going to do another film about Monk, and then he was so fascinated by this this footage, because you're seeing Monk kind of you know off off-key in a way. I mean, he's not really... Well, trying he wasn't to... all that talkative in the first place. No, I mean, he's very... I mean, he's a, he's a strange guy. I mean, his wife shows up briefly in the film, uh, and, and he says at one point, you know, she does everything for me, you know, just talk to her. Um, uh, it was all through the music. and um, But but the, the back story of this was in 1954, when he hadn't really hit yet. That was like a couple of years later where he was doing that, and then he was on the cover of Time magazine, etc. But um, he was interviewed as well, and uh, he talked about how in that time uh, he wasn't paid well, even though he was the headliner for the group in 54. And, and so, so the, uh, the interviewer uh, in, in 69 now says to him, well... Uh, we shouldn't. This is in the outtakes. He says we shouldn't bring that up because it's not nice. So when he says that, you know, and we're close up on Monk for most of this, and you can see he just wants to, you know, get the heck out of there. Yeah. Uh, and at one point, he, he actually tries to. Um, and another point, uh, the the interviewer talks about how he says, well, when you were first, you know, before you'd really made it, uh, you had an upright piano, but then you got a grand piano, um, but you put the piano in the kitchen. Says, why did you put the piano in the kitchen? So Monk says, well, it was it was the only place where it fit in the apartment, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which is shocking to have a kitchen a big kitchen. enough to yeah. take a grand piano. But I mean, that in and of itself is worthy. Of- <laughs> that's right. But I mean, it's sort of like the Willie Sutton thing, you know. You know, why do you rob banks? Because that's where the money is. You know. Uh, anyway, it's 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 all sort of fascinating. But the best part, of course, is when we actually get to see him play. Uh, and he plays, you know, Salt Peanuts, Round Midnight, Monk's Mood. And I- I've never seen a, a pianist who, who j- it seemed to literally think through his fingers in that way. And his that sort of acute, that, you know, harmonic angularity that he has as a player, the way his rhythms and beats are like no one else's, it's absolutely extraordinary. And, and I don't know if he knew where it came from. He certainly couldn't articulate it. Yeah, he wasn't one, as so many artists are, to talk to you know to, to talk you through that. Yeah. But the music is, is unbelievable. Unbelievable. So it's worth seeing. Rewind and play. Thelonious Monk, a composer, pianist at the center of it. Alain Gomi is the director of the film. It's unrated. You can see it at uh, the Acropolis Cinema, at the Lumiere Cinema, at the Music Hall in Beverly Hills. Showing Up, uh, a comedic drama starring Michelle Williams and Hong Chow, directed by one of my favorites, Kelly Reichardt. I love her work. The film's written by Reichardt and Jonathan Raymond. Claudia, please tell us about Showing Up. 
Gladly. She's one of my favorites, too. Um, this is very spare and uh, seemingly straightforward. Uh, you have to have patience for it. You can't go in expecting a lot of That's action. That's the way her movies That's are. That's how her movies are. And it's brilliantly nuanced. It's meticulously observed. And, you know, she has been, she has made eight movies total, and four of them have been with Michelle Williams. And so uh, I think Michelle is kind of amused for her. And I think this is one of the best things I've seen Michelle Williams do, a lot better than uh, The Fablemans, I think. Um, it's very intimate and contemplative, but you do have to adjust your standards. You know, we're all kind of programmed for action. And this, uh, not that much happens here because it is a character study. Um, there's a lot going on under the surface. Uh, Michelle Williams plays Lizzie, who's this melancholy sculptor, and she's preparing for a new show. They live somewhere in Portland because so many of her films are set around Oregon or in the Northwest. Hong Chow, who is wonderful, she plays her neighbor, Joe, and her kind of disinterested landlord. Um, she never tends to things that she should be tending to. And she's also a more successful artist, and she seems to have a fuller life and a better apartment and a more lighthearted disposition. And so there's kind of the passive-aggressive connection between the two of them. Um, and we watch as Lizzie balances her artistic process with daily dramas, with um, you know, bonds with family, um, and it's a pretty interesting dysfunctional family. Judd Hirsch is in it again, speaking of um, the Fablemans. <laughs> he plays her dad. Um, and for instance, like Joe makes this big show of rescuing a wounded pigeon, uh, but the day-to-day -day care kind of falls to Lizzie. And the way they each take care of this bird says a lot about their who they are. It speaks volumes about their their character and their outlook. It's just really modest and, and low-key, but it's I found it captivating and funny and smart, and it has a lot to say about the power dynamics between fellow artists. And um, I just feel like when Reichardt is at her best, she's just a master. And this feels like one of her best. Yeah. I just I just love spending time in the film Me as too. I'm watching her work. Wendy and Lucy was one of my oh, all-time favorites. great film. Yeah. And again, nothing really happens. No. You're just with them yes. for the course of the film. Showing up, Peter. Uh, well, I, I liked it, but I, I don't think the movie quite showed up for me. Uh, and I was waiting for it to sort of grow on me in the coming days, you know, as some of these films do. Um, but I thought, you know, it's very languid. It's very digressive. I understand that that's the way it should be. And I, and I certainly prefer that type of movie to, you know, the crash bang stuff that we generally are exposed to, subjected to. Um, but I do think that, that, I think she went a little bit over the edge in this film, in in that in the sort of languid uh, realm. That 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 there really, uh, you know, there wasn't quite enough there there for me. Uh, Michelle Williams, I I much preferred her in this to to Fablemans as as Claudia did. I really preferred Judd Hirsch in this film to Fablemans, yes. where he was you know strip mining the scenery, and and here he's <laughs> he's just really funny. It's a, just a small role, um, but you know, there's a lot of um, uh, scenes that that don't go anywhere in particular, and and once you sort of get into the mood of okay, well, this isn't really going to explode into anything terribly revelatory, uh, you know, it's 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 genial enough. But uh, Hong Chao is is great. I mean, it's a it's a very good cast. Uh, the um, uh, Michelle Williams character has a brother who's on the spectrum, and and he's an interesting character. Uh, he's an artist who may be more gifted than Michelle Williams is. Uh, there's a funny scene where they have an art gallery opening and he's eating all the, the cheese that's put out for the guests, you know, and they say, well, you shouldn't be eating it. It's, it's not dinner. And he says, well, for me it is, you know, that kind of stuff. I mean, there are a lot of grace notes, but I felt overall it didn't really uh, hit the mark for me. We're talking about showing up from director and co-writer Kelly Reichardt. Michelle Williams stars. It's rated R. You can see it at AMC's The Grove and AMC Century City Theaters. Uh, let's at least get started. We only have about a minute or so, though, Charles, on the Japanese anime film Subrene, the movie The First Shot from uh, writer-director Takuya Yamamura. What did you think of the film? There are anime series and films about pretty much every sport from badminton to sumo. And Tsurune is about judo, Japanese archery. In fact, the name is an automatopoeic rendering of the vibration sound of a bowstring after the arrow's been loosed. And this excited the hero, uh, Minato, when he was a little boy. And so he became a kind of judo prodigy. But in his last middle school tournament, he, he somehow froze up and could no longer hit the target and quit the sport. 
And now that he's in high school, his good friend tries to persuade him to come back to it and to the new team at the new school. So he's got his fears and anxieties to overcome. And instead of making this just another underdog sports tale, the filmmakers really make it about the psychological and even uh, spiritual growth of Minato and his team members. Hold that thought. We'll come back and get more with Charles Solomon. It's Film Week on L.A. is 89.3. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at Elias.com slash sweeps. Elias has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com slash events. It's Film Week on L.A. Estate 89.3 as we listen to music from the Oscar-winning score for The Last Emperor from 1987. The composer of that score, Ryuchi Sakamoto, died last week. We remember him by listening to this and a little bit later on the program, another one of his compositions. It's Film Week. We're joined by critics Charles Solomon, Claudia Puig, and Peter Rayner. We're right in the middle of listening to Charles' review of the Japanese anime film Surene, the movie, The First Shot. Charles, just a couple more thoughts on it, please. Yeah, well, all Japanese martial arts have spiritual underpinnings. And the point of something like Kudo is to learn self-discipline and focus and to act spontaneously without conscious decision-making, to move beyond uh, mere technical skill and really discovering the art and the beauty of the sport. And that's what Minato is learning. And you and Claudia were talking earlier about the garishness of films like um, the Super Mario Brothers and the Trolls and some of the other things. And this film is very much in contrast to that. The colors are soft and muted, reflecting the landscape and the outdoor arena where uh, they perform the archery. It's a really charming film, and it's recut footage from the first season that was made about four or five years ago to introduce the new second season that's um, on high dive now. All right. So uh, something, a really interesting film and one that uh, I recommend. It's going to be in select theaters on Sunday and Monday coming up at the tail end of this weekend. Surene, the movie, the first shot is rated G. The French film The Worst Ones, a comedic drama that's directed by Lise uh, Coca and Roman Guerre. Uh, the film uh, is uh, also uh, written by uh, Guerre. Peter, what did you think of The Worst Ones? Uh, it's pretty good. It's a directorial, uh, directorial debut for, for the co-directors. Um, the scenario is that there's a, a film director who wants to make a movie in a sort of working-class suburb of, uh, of, of France, Cité Picasso, and um, he wants to use all non-actors and kids from the neighborhood. It's a sort of adolescent uh, angst movie. And um, so he chooses four kids from, from the community, all of whom are in real life misfits, basically playing misfits in the movie. And the, the neighborhood uh, elders especially are incensed about this they say why should you pick the worst ones you know to be in this film and um uh but it's a movie about the relationship between 
who these kids are in real life. Uh, you know, one one girl is is sort of considered a slut in school, and and she's playing someone who's pregnant. And uh, there's another guy who was let out of juvenile detention recently who plays her boyfriend, etc. So so there's it's a, it's a sort of movie within a movie thing, which uh, we may be familiar with to some extent from the No Bears film, which we talked about uh, mm-hmm. some time yeah. ago, the Iranian film. Um, so the, 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 the ways in which the performances, the roles that these kids play uh, impinges on their real lives uh, is interesting. And the, the director, uh, who's played by an actor who's the only you know, uh, actual actor in the film, uh, he's kind of a, a, a martinet, but he's trying to keep these kids in line because they don't really, you know, know much about acting or movies and and the their truants. Uh, but it's 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 a fascinating movie. The kids themselves, uh, I don't know if any of them are going to go on to be actors in the real world, uh, but the fact that they and the film itself draws on, you know, there's a whole history of French movies about truants. You know, Four Hundred Blows, Zero for Conduct, many others. Um, this isn't not in that category, but uh, but it has some of the same issues going on for it. Film is the worst ones from France. The film's unrated. You can see it at the Lemley Monica Film Center in Santa Monica. Sam, now uh, a documentary about uh, Sam Harkness and uh, his Seattle family. Reed Harkness is the director of the documentary. Claudia, Sam, now. I found this film fascinating. Um, it traces the emotional ups and downs and uh, trauma of this family, um, and it's done in a, in a pretty innovative and artistic way. Um, the intimacy between the subject and the artist is, is something that's really powerful. So um, Reed Harkness is the director. He is the half-brother of Sam, who this is about. And um, this is filmed over a course of about 25 years. It goes back to when they were... 12 and goes up to, you know, when they're in their late 30s, mid to late 30s. And these are half-brothers. They go on a road trip in search of answers to a family mystery. And I don't want to give too much away because I think it's important to sort of see how it unfolds. Um, it's shot on different formats, including Super 8, which is interesting because clearly he was a kid that was fascinated with film. Um, and all I'll say is that Sam's mom, who was also the stepmom of Reed, is missing. And she, she uh departs abruptly when they're teenagers at a really, you know, there's never a good time to be abandoned, and this would not be a particularly good time. Um, So they try to solve the mystery of her disappearance, um, and there's this, like, very intimate home footage, a lot of personal interviews, honest interviews with the father. Um, The parents were were divorced. Um, There's some verite scenes. There's, um, it's really, I thought it was a really interesting way. They also uh, interspersed some animation, kind of superhero animation, which works um, with this kind of, and some grunge rock soundtrack, which is appropriate since it's set in Washington State in the Northwest. Um, It's kind of this hybrid narrative approach. And um, I found it really compelling. It was introspective. It was a look at family relationships and also how you heal and or maybe don't and the traumas that you encounter. I I was uh, really riveted. And it's shot over a period of years. It sounds like over this this actual time period. Absolutely. Sam Now is the documentary. Peter. I was less taken with this. It, it's a difficult film to talk about because, you know, we don't want to give too much away. Right. And I could have a lot more to say if we did. But but the, the revelation uh, in the film, I'll say, comes about half an hour into the movie. Um, so there's a lot of stuff that comes after that that uh, I, I didn't feel that the, the mixture of tones, the mixture of, of footage... Uh, the the length of time, uh, the the reenactments in a way, the kid is playing uh, uh, a fantasy character called the the, the Blue Panther, uh, and it, all of that seemed to me almost like filler for what I really wanted to see, which was a really incisive look at how these how this family related to this trauma, and it's a large extended family uh, of many generations on all sides. Uh, most of whom get to say something in the movie, but it seemed to me not enough. And and uh, some of the characters hardly uh, are on camera at all to really express how they feel. And and it just seemed like, uh, you know, without giving much away, the 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 central issue of what happened to the mother uh, when we discover what happened. Um, there's so, there's so much more that is goes unspoken and I think could have been addressed that isn't in this film. I think that was kind of the point, is that the family didn't 
address it and and you know for whatever reason kind of glossed over it and well i you know i wish there had been like a mike wallace or somebody in there to, to, <laughs> should to always really be a mike talk. wallace everywhere yeah, because everybody's <laughs> sort of evading everything for the whole movie yeah. and it's like all right okay you know sam now is the documentary it's unrated lemley's glendale theater in glendale Paint, a comedic drama starring Owen Wilson and Wendy McClendon Covey. Uh, the film's written and directed by Britt McAdams. Peter. Uh, this is a very strange movie. Um, I gather that fans of Bob Ross, who is the uh, the PBS painter, you know, and a beloved figure, he, he died in 1995, that, that uh, uh, the LA Times today had a piece about, you know, all the Bob Ross fans are really up in arms that they not, you know, just... Desecrate his image in this film. Um, Owen Wilson is playing a Bob Ross type character. He's a Vermont PBS uh, a star. Uh, does you know Painting paints landscapes? On TV, yeah. Right. You know when he has that sort of uh, you know bouffant and and the, he looks a lot like Bob Ross. He sounds somewhat like him too, um, but but he's also kind of a womanizer. He's 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 a strange guy, uh, and that aspect of it, I think. You know, it wasn't clear to me if this movie is supposed to be a parody or a satire or what. I mean, there's not a lot of laughs in this film, which may be intentional, but then what's the point of the film, uh, in a way? Owen Wilson always seems... I like Owen Wilson, but he always seems to be playing himself or versions of himself. Uh, so, you know, it's it's a really mixed bag, and I wish it had been better. What did you think of Paint, Claudia? I completely agree. I think uh, it, I wish it had had more biting satire. You know, it, it seems very loosely based on Bob Ross, and it's about more than that. It's about mediocre men who've been deluded into thinking that they're great. It reminds me of that phrase. I think that's attributed to uh, the writer Sarah Hagi. Lord, give me the confidence of a mediocre white man. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, the problem is that the movie is only mediocre, and they could have had a lot of fun with this. It could have had a more biting satire. It has a couple of droll moments, maybe a laugh or two. It's the kind of character that Will Ferrell might have played before, but yeah. maybe better. I, I like Owen Wilson too, but um, it's just so mellow. And, and then it has this tonal shift at the end where it kind of tries to be sweet. Um, it feels very awkward and wrongheaded. The movie is Paint, starring Owen Wilson, rated PG-13 in wide release. Rosha and Frank, uh, an Irish drama. Uh, the film's written and directed by Rachel Moriarty and Peter Murphy. Claudia. I'm very proud of this movie because it had its North American premiere at the Santa Barbara International Film Festival, which, you direct, which I am program director yes. for. And um, I watched it and went, oh, this is this is going to work. And it won our audience award. And it was one that people were clamoring to see. And it's since gone on to play many festivals around the world. Um, it's whimsical and charming. It's modest. It's, you know, almost slight. But it has an especially adorable shaggy dog as a main co-star. Who can resist that? And it's set in this beautiful little Irish coastal village also hard to resist um it's near waterford and it you know i think this has been a good year for it's in the irish language it's in irish which i think we used to call gaelic but um it's this has been a good year for that with banshees of inishirin yeah. and the quiet girl um both two of the best films of last year i thought so the story here is that a, a, a widow who's kind of given up on life and is still mourning her husband that died two years before becomes convinced that a stray dog is the reincarnation of her husband and um, it's just this gentle story, delicately told. It, but it stops short of being, you know, too sugary. It's just, it's uh, very much an audience pleaser, and uh, very well acted by the lead actor, uh, the, the lead actress, whose name I'm not even going to try to say because it's. I'm uh, going to try it. Okay. Whitney Nocton. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> hopefully I'm that sounds close. good. <laughs> she gives a lovely, gentle performance. I thought she can. You can uh, breed. You can let me know if I if I blew it. <laughs> Rosha and Frank is the film. It's unrated. It's at. Lemley's Town Center 5 Encino and at Lemley's Royal in West Los Angeles. Uh, the film Chupa is set in Mexico, directed by Onas Cuaron, Alfonso Cuaron's uh, son. Uh, Peter, what did you think of Chupa? Uh, this is a sweet but very minor movie. Um, it, uh, there's a young boy played by uh, Evan Witten, Alex, who uh, uh, he... Um, He's, he doesn't fit in with his, you know, white community in his school, and he doesn't feel connected to Mexico, and he, he's very, you know, self-conscious about all of that. So his mother, he visits his grandfather in Mexico uh, and his cousins who live there in the ranch, and, um, and you know, 
really sort of connects with the with the, the land and the people and and in the process he befriends this uh you know not so mythic uh creature um which uh you know supposedly sucks the blood of goats and and it, it's a very you know a baby uh, chupacabra, chupacabra yeah. yeah which uh uh, is uh, suspiciously looks like ET and can fly, you know. So there's a lot of ET going on in this movie. Not a, not in that uh, category, of course. But um, uh, it's it's. I thought the kids were kind of bland overall, and okay. the filmmaking was uh, was sort of pro forma. Uh, Damien Bashir plays the grandfather who has uh, dementia periodically in the film, and and he's always great. He's to always watch. good. Yeah. Always. Yeah. yeah, I mean, he's the best reason to see the film. Chupa is the movie, Claudia. I liked it. Um, I thought it was, you know, as you say, it's slight. It's an enjoyable family film. It does have an ET vibe. Also, a little bit of an Indiana Jones vibe yeah. because there's some scientists played by Christian Slater. They're kind of villainous, which is weird to have scientists be villains. But um, the mysterious opening draws you in right away and this chupacabra is so cute it looks like a koala bear with See, a I don't get that <laughs> I know it's a baby chupacabra but I know so. it's parents mother's not so cute it's more like a vampire bat but um, but it looks like a little koala bear with like a coat like a German shepherd and I thought the kid was a pretty good actor and what it, what I liked about it was that it sort of taught him to appreciate his heritage because he you know had been like the lone Mexican-American kid at his Kansas City school and he was bullied and so he comes to you know embrace his heritage um, but I also just think that little Chupa was so cute <laughs> <laughs> Onaz Cuaron is the director <laughs> and the film is written by Sean Kennedy Moore Joe Barnathan and Marcus Reinhardt Chupa is the film uh, action adventure it's in select theaters and the film is also streaming on Netflix it's rated PG our critics this week Charles Solomon, Claudia Puig, and Peter Rayner as we listen to uh, more music from the terrific uh, Japanese composer Ryuchi Sakamoto, who died uh, several days ago. This also from The Last Emperor. It's Film Week on L.A. at 89.3. Coming up, a look at the 100th anniversary of Warner Brothers. Hi, it's Mary Louise Kelly from All Things Considered. There were 356,000 fewer journalists working in 2023 than 20 years ago. If you care about education, if you care about the rise in homelessness, and if you're passionate about the climate emergency, trusted, independent journalism benefits us all. Donate now at laist.com give. Democracy needs to be heard. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at LAS.com slash events. See you there. Listening to the evolution of the Warner Brothers fanfare, synonymous with Warner Brothers pictures. The fanfare composed by Max Steiner and Warner Brothers, like Disney, celebrating its centennial. In fact, we have a beautiful book that looks chronologically at the evolution of Warner Brothers from our guest Mark A. Vieira. The book is titled Warner Brothers, 100 Years of Storytelling. Mark, so good to have you with us today. The photos in this book are extraordinary. Oh, thank you, Larry. It, it's, it's, it's a pleasure to be here. And let me tell you one reason why. You know, as well as anyone, writers write in solitude. And I wrote this in a digital bubble <laughs> <laughs> because of the lockdown, you know. Yeah. Uh, but I, in, in any case, the pleasure of having someone respond to what I write and also to the images that every one of which had to come through my computer be reformatted, cleaned up, enhanced, color corrected. I mean, there are some 
Kodachrome images in there of Errol Flynn that haven't been seen since the 30s and that had not faded because Kodachrome dyes don't fade, but they still needed to be cleaned up a bit because, you know, it's yeah. <laughs> 89 years is 89 years. So uh, I had the great pleasure of working on these unique images and enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed working with the later images, too, the films from the 70s that I saw when I was at film school at USC. And and then films recent the recent films the the, the tent pole blockbusters yeah. yeah I mean you had how did you get access did Warner's just give you all this access to archives to to put all these photos in the book Yes Warner Brothers has an archive of images, uh, and I was able to to look there for specific things that I in my head for all my years of writing said oh I'd love to put that in a book someday. But also things were there that surprised me that I didn't expect. And I think the, the readers will say, wow, I've never seen this picture of Vivian Lee, Tennessee Williams, Elia Kazan on the set of Streetcar Named Desire. Wow, all three of them together in the same image. And it looks so beautiful. They look so healthy and happy. Uh, you know, would that they had continued in that state. <laughs> I, I, I'm looking, even going back to 1926, Ernst Lubitsch's uh, So This Is Paris. You've got, and the photo actually extends um, beyond uh, the uh, the binding of the book. You've got two-thirds uh, of an open page here. And the detail of, you know, the casts of thousands, which were <laughs> not atypical for films of the 20s, it's extraordinary. All the people, and then the, the set design looks like giant legs of dancing girls made into these the props with musicians between where their feet fall. It's, it's an extraordinary image. Well, I knew that was going to be large, so I really worked on detail. Went in there and cleaned up with the little spots and dots and cracks. Yeah. But also sharpened noses and eyes and, and so that you could just, you know, go into that picture and go from one side to the other and be lost in it like you're at that party. Let's, let's talk about the origins of the studio. We have brothers Harry, Albert, Sam, and Jack. This is the immigrant story as was typical of the early Hollywood studios. Um, there's a wonderful book, uh, Empire of Their Own, about the development of the studios. But let's talk about Warner specifically. So how did the brothers establish themselves? Well, they had to, you know, because uh, being Jewish immigrants, uh, because in Europe they were not allowed to own property, own a business, uh, own real, you know, I should say real property, uh, they they came to the United States with the hope of prospering or at least getting steady work, and they first found it with shoe repair. And they were aggressive. They were tireless. They were energetic. They were pleasant to people. I mean, they just had all these wonderful qualities that we associate with the American dream. And they they had setbacks. They had many setbacks. Uh, but, you know, the reason that the, the film industry appeal, appealed to them was that— uh, you didn't need a, a pedigree or a degree or, or connections. You could start from scratch, you know, just get a, a storefront and put some Nickelodeons in there. And then the next thing, of course, was projected movies. And then, for example, Jack Warner, when he was born in 1892, later than the, the other brothers. He was a little boy, and he was able to sing between movies. They called him the chaser, to, ch to chase people out between movies. But he learned in that way what audiences want, what they respond to, what bores them. Uh, and all this, you know, for all the years that he was in, in Hollywood, all this came into play. He, he understood the nature of entertaining human beings. And, of course, we have Warner Brothers Studios in Burbank, which is an intact studio. You know, so many of the other studios, like the Fox lot, they sold off the majority of their property, MGM, which is now Sony Studios in Culver City, similarly. But but Warner Brothers is largely the same footprint. And, and it's nice to see a studio like that that's still its full size. And you can go to the to the sound stages where certain films were made, or see that sound stage where they raised the roof for the Marion Davies film uh, *Cain and Mabel*, and William Randolph Hearst, <laughs> through Cosmopolitan Productions, helped them pay for it. But it, so it became the highest sound stage in the industry. 1927, *The Jazz Singer*. How does that change the fortunes of Warner's? It it brought them from being a second string studio, albeit with a, a good. Uh, 
star in John Barrymore and a good star in, let's not forget, Rin Tin Tin. <laughs> but it, it, it lifted them, uh, their company, up to the level of Fox Film Corporation, which is William Fox, uh, MGM, which is Louis B. Mayer and Irving Thalberg, and Paramount, which was uh, uh, Adolf Zucker, B.P. Schulberg, and Jesse Lasky. And these people were, were very, very important because they were all visionaries. They were all hard-headed businessmen, but they all understood what human beings respond to in a darkened theater. They just had a feeling for that. So when Warner Brothers did the sound film, they they jumped, they leapfrogged ahead of everybody else in the industry to do this this technology that technology that that wasn't available elsewhere. And of course, all of a sudden, you know, they're having. Uh, Revenues of you know nine million dollars, where previously they were lucky to have one. So it, it uh, you know their big year, of course, was 1929 when when talkies really took hold. When re- when all the theaters, at least most of them, were wired for sound, so they could they just you know pushed ahead of all the other studios and and did this you know MGM for example, the the most prosperous and powerful, was left behind in the dust, and you know they caught up of course. But the point is, Warner Brothers seemingly came out of nowhere with this technological events that one brother had really fearlessly devoted his energy and his strength and his. Which brother again that was, was the uh, one who pushed for that? Uh, Sam, and sad to say, it cost him his life. He he worked so hard that he neglected his health, and he was killed by a massive uh, sinus infection. We're talking about the history of Warner Brothers Studios. It's the 100th anniversary of Warner's. And Mark Vieira's new book, Warner Brothers, 100 Years of Storytelling, Ben Mankiewicz of Turner Classic Movies with a a terrific foreword to the book as well. And the real star, these incredible photos that Mark, as a photographer himself, uh, completely cleaned up, um, just made them absolutely crystal clear for the book as he takes you through decade by decade how Warner Brothers evolved as the motion picture business did as well. You've, of course, got the Westerns. Warner Brothers known for a particular type of Western, wasn't it, Mark? It just um, kind of way of approaching those films. Yes, uh, and the curious part is they cast, they didn't cast an American as, the, as a star of the Westerns. They cast a, an Australian, Errol Flynn, as the star of the westerns, but he was fant- he he was so good. Born to the western, yeah, yeah, he was as good in those as he was on a, the deck of a ship in Captain Blood and the Sea Hawk. And and then uh, in later years, of course, uh, Warner Brothers uh, moving into television, of course, uh, other areas of media. But we're talking about a hundred years going back to the film industry, and it start. Uh, with Warner Brothers, one of the major studios here in Los Angeles. We'll continue our conversation with Mark Vieira, Warner Brothers, 100 Years of Storytelling, when we come back on Film Week here on LAS 89.3. Disney with its centennial, Warner Brothers with its centennial as well, and the new book to commemorate it is Warner Brothers, 100 Years of Storytelling from our guest, Mark A. Vieira. Mark, uh, let's talk about some of the actors who were contracted to Warner Brothers and really associated with their films. Betty Davis, of course, who made so many films for Warner Brothers. What is it that the studio understood about her audience appeal? The good story here is, at first they didn't. <laughs> she had to go to on a loan out to RKO to make a human bondage to show the industry and her bosses, Jack Warner and Harry specifically, that she could reach people, could really give a great performance because they'd been putting her in, in really unworthy roles. And once that she demonstrated how powerful she could be in, in, a, in a role, uh, they then gave her better parts like the sisters and then we get into the old maid, uh, Dark Victory, uh, the letter. These She really was a huge earner for, for Warner Brothers at that time, so much so that she later claimed that they had been able to build a soundstage with the revenue from her films in 39 and 40. And she was jokingly referred to as 
the fourth Warner brother. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, she was a very strong personality herself, uh, someone who was not quiet about uh, advocating on her behalf. How did the brothers relate with her? Uh, they didn't—they <laughs> resisted. Uh, she had to go to court at one point to, to try and get a better contract— uh, to try to get out, you know, out from under their thumb, and to, but it didn't work. What it worked in doing was getting her better roles. So, it, I mean, her energy, her efforts were not for nothing. She really did get better roles, and uh, she was a star for eighteen years at Warner Brothers, um, and it's she did return, I guess, briefly for Baby Jane. Whatever happened to Baby Jane? Yeah, yeah. which was not exactly at Warner's production, but it was released through Warner's. But the point is. Um, would she have become the same kind of star that she did at MGM, at Paramount? Probably not. So there was room for her, yes. for someone like her. For her quirky, her, yeah. her angry energy. There was room for that at Warner Brothers. Yeah, so compelling on, on the screen. Humphrey Bogart, another star that we saw a lot of in Warner Brothers Yeah, another, films. another person who <laughs> fought, Doesn't fit the, who, yeah, the mold. Right, didn't fit the mold. He was, you know... If, if, when he became a star, he was, you know, too old, really, in the eyes of Hollywood. Uh, you know, he wasn't Dick Powell singing. He was somebody with, you know, uh, a world-weary, you know, affect. And he really grabbed people in the early 40s because that's the mood of the country at that time. What he, what he offered, too, was versatility, uh, the, what he had learned on stage and what he had learned through years of playing this role and that role. He could do something as... as off the wall as uh, Treasure of the Sierra Madre, and then be as slick as he was in Casablanca. So true. Mark Vieira with us, author of the new book, Warner Brothers, A Hundred Years of Storytelling. Um, and, of course, the terrific Ilya Kazan films, which really give you social commentary, face in the crowd with Andy Griffith and On the Waterfront, so many of these other uh, films. How did the Warners... Uh, come to embrace those kinds of, of social commentary films? Well, the, in some way, the Warners saw themselves as outsiders. They, you know, they were late in coming to Hollywood. And, of course, you know, their, their whole social background of, of having to struggle in this, this society that wasn't welcoming to Jewish people. And so the films that they made had this edge, had this uh, chip-on-their-shoulder attitude that, Really, that's why someone like Betty Davis Bogart, uh, Edward G. Robinson, Paul Muni, James Cagney, the, their films are are you know look at me I'm I'm a citizen too I deserve what everybody else is getting and and I'm going to get it somehow or other you know whether it's legally or not as in the case of the Public Enemy and Little Caesar it's not not legal but the energy and the vitality really came from those brothers. Uh, and as I said, they understood the nature of show business and, and entertaining people, but they also had real concern about uh, equality in America, about equality in the world, about justice. And uh, Warner Brothers, by that token, was the same. The, I'm sorry, the first uh, company to deal with, uh, in Confessions of a Nazi Spy, the, the rise of fascism, when no other studio would dare touch that topic. Mark, uh, even going back to some of those early uh, films, Public en The Public Enemy and, and others, there's a harshness, a grit to those films, a nastiness, and I mean that in a good way because that's what it's depicting, that I have to assume um, got them into some degree of conflict with the Hayes office. And, uh, uh, how much of that was a part of a particularly some of those early films once uh, the code was established? Well, uh, there, there, there was a code in 31 when those two films came out, Public Enemy and Little Caesar. But they managed to navigate through the, the it was called the Studio Relations Committee. The man was named Jason Joy. He was an ex-Red Cross executive who was very, was very liberal. He, he said, look, you're trying to convey a good message. You're not doing it in a bad way. Okay, I'll pass the scene. Well, what happened was uh, local censors jumped on those. There was uh, eight censor boards and then the local censors cut those scenes out. So we don't know how many people in 1931 saw the film that we see now. Yeah. 
Well, that's interesting. Uh, Mark, of course, Warner Brothers Animation with incredible talent that was there, Chuck Jones, uh, uh, Frizz Freeling, so many other terrific uh, animators there. And and what made it, of course, stand out is it was animation done for adults, but the kids could also enjoy. Oh, for example, that uh, cartoon book review where you have the zoot suit wolf and going into all the different book covers and into the books, it's just, you know, it requires a certain degree of cultural literacy, which Americans did have at that time. But it also, you know, goes into the zoot suit culture, which was pretty interesting. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not your mainstream thing. And it's, it's and plus it has all that movement and that energy and that noise. And it's, you know, it's, it's just, these are wonderful works of art. And, and Mark, I also wanted to talk with you about, you know, the studio more recently, because as Marvel Studios and Disney's acquisition of Marvel has shown the potential for taking, you know, superheroes, turning them into extremely valuable franchises, Warner's has really struggled with the DC properties that it controls. Great characters, you know, Batman uh, and and Superman and all. Why why has it been so much more challenging, you think, for Warner's? Well, I think that they have to find the formula that Jack Warner found when he was a kid singing in front of people and they wanted to boo him off the stage. You've got to find some way to, to touch that common emotion, that common, that uni- that universality of hu- human beings to to hook them to the film. And that has to be in, in your character, whether it's animated, superhero, or, or flesh, flesh and blood. Why has Clint Eastwood lasted so long? Because he, there's something in him that touches the audience. Speaking of another Warner star. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Talk about longevity. Yeah, still making movies. Mark Vieira, thank you so much for being with us to talk about your new book. It's absolutely gorgeous, and I learned a lot about Warners. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Mark A. Vieira, his book, Warner Brothers, 100 Years of Storytelling, giving us a look at the centennial of Warner Brothers pictures. It's Film Week on L.A. is 89.3. So good to have you with us. If you missed any of this interview or any of our reviews with our critics, remember you can listen to them at your convenience wherever you get your podcasts or at las.com have a wonderful weekend from all of us at film week all seven states on the colorado river may have to cut back water but not everyone agrees on how from coloradans who blame others for the crisis There continues to be a look upstream to solve a problem that we did not create. To farmers who may lose their livelihoods. We don't want to cut equal with everybody else. Will they reach a deal in time? Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.